Break time. We'll start with bad, then we'll go good. I prefer, always prefer to end with good. So being an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about. My art practice has been exploring the intersection of being Aboriginal and queer. Our community, again, respecting our elders enough to fight for it, and that's pretty bestest. Best Day, Worst Day is a podcast where I get to know a bit more about some of the LGBTIQA plus artists and activists I've been really inspired by. I ask them to tell me about a good time they've had and a bad time they've had, and what, if anything, they've learned from those experiences. Their answers have always been fascinating. Just being able to make someone that happy to show that much love, that was that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. This is the first time in a very long time that we won. Who's doing anything in this era? This peer support project is supported by the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, Vic Health, and a proud part of Brimbank City Council's Work for Victoria Artists in Residency. This project touches on many topics like suicide, loss of loved ones, poor mental health, and experiences of hospitalisation. I don't know whether to call it major breakdown. Maybe that's the worst. <laughs> for a whole year, I was in terrible grief, and I did a lot of advocacy from that grief. Best Day, Worst Day, a podcast made in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to episode 8 of Best Day, Worst Day. In this episode, I interview Nikki Viveka. Nikki is a multidisciplinary artist whose work encompasses stand-up, performance, poetry, dance, theatre, improv, and any genre that is reliably queer as fuck. She's been seen recently in her solo show Wasp Movie and in the cabaret spectacular Gender Euphoria. Hi, my name's Nikki Vivica. I'm a Canadian poet and actress. I live in Melbourne on the country country in Pasco Vale. Very suburban, very straight. And yet, in the middle of it, here am I, little big girl, traveling into the city to do my art. I haven't always lived in Melbourne. I was born in rural Queensland, in Toowoomba, which is quite a large town, but very conservative, very conservative place, and still is. It has the rather dubious honour of being one of the no-voting electorates in Marriage Publicite. And when I was talking to my family during that time, they were very proud that they got like 40-something percent yes back there. That was seemed unheard of that there would be that much support in the community. So growing up there as a trans girl, I wasn't like I wasn't out as a kid, but I was pretty obviously gender queer when I was young. That was pretty tough. Real Queensland's a pretty, pretty tough place to come from. And when I moved out of Toowoomba, then I moved to Canberra and I studied there for a few years. Canberra was a slight step up on Toowoomba, but this little little one, it's an little little step up. And eventually I made my way to Melbourne, um, as I've been living in Melbourne for the last 20 years now. Most of my life now has been in Melbourne. I sort of hopped around between a few different arts. I started off originally doing acting, I did the filmmaking, then I got into improv, which was the first art which I really launched myself at. I was doing improv every week, performing lots of improv shows. From improv I went into doing stand-up comedy and storytelling. I do a lot of storytelling about identity. My first solo show was about being asexual, so it was like, kind of like my coming out show. I was still very awkward about coming out to people. Back when I was a teenager, I came out as bi. People had completely ignored it. Nobody had paid any attention. They, they probably forgot. So I felt a bit nervous about when I was you know, actually coming out as what I, what I really am, which is asexual. So I just made a show about it and invited people to the show so everyone came to see me. And it had asexual in the title. 
but everyone thought it was just, just a pun. They didn't know that, that was actually going to be what the show was about. But it was it was nice when it came out. Then I enjoyed doing stand up out of that. So because a lot of my stuff's quite personal in my work, that stand up has moved sort of naturally onto less comedic storytelling and into spoken word and poetry. Recently, I've actually been doing probably more poetry than stand up. And um, I also do a lot of burlesque, uh, strippy hand dancing, especially I do a lot of hand dancing. That's kind of have a lot of passion for that, even though I'm probably in terms of career terms, I'm more focused on spoken word stuff. For me, dancing is just a pure creativity and pure creative release. So I probably spend more time doing my dancing than I do doing the other things, even though if you ask me what my profession is, I'd be like, oh, comedian. Over time, with doing dance on the side of spoken word, I'm sort of starting to mix my spoken word as well as as well, which is the space I'm really happy working, working in it, is doing shows which are, like, they're a bit burlesque they're a bit poetic, they're a bit comedic. A mix of those different things. I try to put as much of myself onto the stage as I can. So that way I feel like you create a show which only you can do because only you have all those, those interests and all those skills. So, yeah, that's what I do in a word. Sexy, poetic, stand-up on mostly nerdy topics like bees. <laughs> and at the moment I'm working on a play. So playing a, I'm in a play at Midsummer where we're a bunch of queer time-traveling witches. And I play the kind of the non-binary head witch. They're not really, it's a communal coven, but it's not really a head witch, but they're the oldest witch who acts like they're the head witch. So I'm playing that. It's called Gorilla Paper. It's happening at Midsummer. Then I'm also doing, last year I was commissioned to write a bunch of poems about the quarantine experience, about the lockdown experience. So I'll be performing them in sort of a live salon as part of Midsummer as well. I asked Nikki if she had any fun facts about herself that she'd like to share. I have a whole poem. Would you like a poem full of fun facts? When you mentioned fun facts, I thought, oh, that's an, a chance to do a reading. I could do my poem of fun facts. So this is a poem I wrote to introduce myself at the start of this. It's called 14 Quirky First Date Facts About Me. One, I never learnt to ride a bike. Two, my favourite birds are the toucan, the cardinal bird, the flamingo, and the duck. Three, I sing pop songs when I'm stressed. Four, my housemates never mentioned my singing, so it must either be okay or else really, really bad. Five. When I was a teenager, my favourite colour was mazamine. It's a shade of blue, but I like it for its name. As a hue, it's only okay. Six. When I was a teenager, my favourite star was Mirzan. Again, for the name, as a star, it's just kind of there. Seven. When I went to uni, I wanted to study astrophysics. They didn't because the maths and physics classes were full of boys and I felt out of place. Eight. I sometimes pretend to have seen movies I haven't so as not to feel left out of conversation. Nine. I can't finish novels without queer characters in them. Ten. I'm afraid of little plastic thingies. I get viscerally repulsed by anything little and plasticky and of uncertain purpose. Uh, you know, the kind of things that would be choking hazards for a child. I never choked on one, so that's not why. Like, I do remember, though, reading warnings about small plastic things being choking hazards and not working out that was if you put them in your mouth because as a child I never put things in my mouth and so I used to wonder how would they choke you. So maybe that's something to do with it. Eleven. People tell me I'm brave all the time, but I know I'm not because I'm a grown woman who's afraid of little plastic things. Twelve. My actual favourite colour is pink. I just didn't want to admit this as a teenager. Thirteen. No one's ever learnt this correct fact because I've never actually been in a first date kind of situation. Fourteen. 
My favourite songs to sing along to are all love songs, and I don't know why. Thank you. I asked Nikki if she'd like to start with a good story or a bad story. Do we go happy first? Do we go worst day first? So like, do you want the bad news or the good news? Everyone asks for the bad news. Because you don't want the good news wrong. You want the... And certainly preparing for it, or like thinking about it, your brain just goes like, bad news, bad news, and call the worst, the worst time. Oh, it's hard It's hard talking about your worst day. It's hard, because we, we often don't talk about it. And especially as a comedian, I'm used to not talking about the really hard stuff. Like, I'm used to writing about it in my personal writing process. And then cherry picking the bits which are funny, or cherry picking the bits which are going to be most relatable to an, an audience. Often there's there's nowhere to tell the really emotional stories. Like I put snippets of it in poetry, but often there are things you can't talk about. And if people ask you about it, like in an interview context or something, you sort of make light of it a bit. I think you make light of other things that you've actually gone through. I've been through some time, put it that way, having grown up queer where I did. But then I think a lot of the moments which feel the worst to me, I think were someone who I cared for, somebody who I loved was in, in peril more than me. Even when I've been in, in very bad and, and scary situations, often my mind is, is anyone else in danger? I can take the danger. Is anyone else hurting? Is anyone else hurting? And then that also makes it sort of hard to, to talk about in some ways because you're like, oh, there's someone else involved. Is that my story? Is it really my best to talk about that? I know the story that I want to tell. I know the story that I want to talk to you about, um, which is, is a suicide-related story. And it's one thing I've never never really spoken about with anyone. And I'm sure I'm the only person who has any memory of these events. But because, you know, it is someone else's, it is someone else's story as well. So it felt almost like I can't talk about it. And so I was living in a share house. I'd been... I've been with my ex-partner, I've been with for 11 years, and we've lived together for most of that time. Always, even for people knew I was lesbian, I was a U-Hauler. <laughs> um, that's a joke. That's a joke. I'm bi slash ace. But I did like moving with my partner very quickly, and we lived together for a long time. Part of the reason why, why we broke up was because I knew that I needed to transition, and I didn't want to take her on that journey. You know, I had that kind of feeling we'd been through enough together, and that was too much to ask of her. So we separated and I was living in the first share house I'd lived in in over a decade. <laughs> and it was this wild ramshackle place in <laughs> in the northern suburbs. And we had a constant turnover of housemates because the place is just a disaster. It was this disaster after disaster. We had the worst landlord. You know, the fence would fall down and you wouldn't do anything about it. <laughs> they would like, there was a toolbox that had been on the roof for years from one time he'd turned up to fix a thing and just forgotten his toolbox. It was that kind of place. Excuse me, sir. The cycle of classmates through there had been all sorts. So we had one who was like, he was like a CEO of a company, but he was like, he was the company. It was just him. He was a CEO and mostly what he did was just smoke weed. And so we had like all his drug mates coming in and out of the house at all, all hours. Doing that, we had a pathological liar who would be like, You'd be like, you haven't paid the rent. And she'd be like, yeah, I have. Like, we know you haven't. That sort of thing. We had somebody who was on the sex offenders register. It was a lot. This house was a lot. And this is the house that I'm needing to come out in. My oldest friend who was in the house had been, I thought, nice when we moved in. Turns out when we lived together, she's really, really transphobic. 
and this is the, you know one of the people who's going to be the first to actually see me as I come out. So I used to, when I was in the house, I used to, like, I used to have to sneak in and out. Adult person in my 30s, sneaking in and out of my house like an oddy teenager because I didn't want my housemates to see me. Just, you know, like, having to pack my heels up on in the hand and sort of, like, sneak up to the door, hope that no one, like, I had the most transphobic housemate had, like, the windows right by the door as well. If she ever looked up from her computer and peered out at me. But it was, like, quite, it was stressful and weird. And it was weird. Like, it felt weird being, being an adult and even to do it like that. I did have, like, a bunch of trans friends, and it was still a point where a lot of people in the community didn't really feel comfortable sort of being out and being seen. And so it was just kind of like any time you invited your trans friends to something, they'd be like, oh, is it okay if I'm there? And I'm like, yeah, of course it's okay. But the whole community still felt very, very underground. And this isn't all that long ago, but... We felt like we were all like dirty secrets. And I had some trans friends that I'd hang out with, which is nice. But they sort of wouldn't like, they couldn't really kind of come and visit me. Like I sort of hang out in, in the car before I went in. I did go through a really hard time. Like I got really, really depressed during that time. And I used to self-harm a lot. And I used to, I didn't make any like sort of suicide attempts, which were really close to succeeding. But I left myself with a lot of, a lot of scars and you can get in a time I, I, I think with suicide where you just like the thinking about it or the wanting to do it is disruptive in itself I'm just like okay so you didn't put your life in danger but you just spent this whole week doing nothing else but not killing yourself and I was in a, a stage like that and my family had got a whiff that was going on they're all up in Queensland and I had let slip that I'd been in that mindset for a while my family actually like was a big shock which it wasn't because I was like that as a teenager um, and especially when I was growing up, there was attitude towards trans people that you had to discourage being trans when somebody was young. So it's like my family and people kind of knew, but the job was to discourage it. And unfortunately, you know, me being a, a smart, looked up, anything I could find about being, being trans, and everything I found was like, this needs to be discouraged, this is how you do it. And so I had developed then, that's that sort of when I developed like the pattern of self-harm because it was, that was one of the ways that you discussed it from, from being trans. Every time you have the impulse to, you know, like in, in my case, to wear feminine clothing, you have to tell yourself no, and that's best to like be attached to like a loud noise or a physical pain or something to reinforce that no. And so I had this habit of like harming every time that, that I had gender feelings. So I had a lot, I had a lot of gender feelings. And I sort of developed a lifelong habit of self-harm at the time. This had always been part of my life, but somehow my family just completely, completely put it from mind or just didn't pay enough attention to, to know. Anyway, they got a bit of it this time, and so a couple of them drove down from Greenland to Melbourne to see me to be supportive, which in theory was nice. Except in practice, if they didn't tell me they were coming, they just turned up. They, they literally turned up and I would just... Woke up one morning, I've got a message, it's like, oh, we're down at this cafe, come on over. I'm like, oh my god, like, I've got all this other stuff to deal with, it's like, now I've got to, like, closet up and go and see my family and talk to them and they don't even give you time, they're just like, we're up the street, come say hi. It was pretty full on, and also then they had had, like, a two-day red-eye drive down from Queensland, so they're just bickering with each other at this point, so it's just like, okay, so great, so you've brought a you brought an argument down and I've got to, I've got to negotiate that and be sort of like the, the net in this game of family tennis. So that was a lot. And the ninth in question that I wanted to 
on to talk about. I'd been seeing my family and I was absolutely burned out from the arguments and from talking to them and trying to navigate how it is through the, the closet act with them. And so I was supposed to go to a party and I just didn't have that motivation to, to do. I'm just like, no, I'm just going to just gonna see the time. And I got a message from one of my friends, one of my trans friends was just sitting there on, on Facebook. And this was a soft, like, nice kind of message saying, like, oh, hey, thanks for, thanks for being such a good friend. I was like, oh, that's nice. I sent her a message in the morning. So I was lying in bed wanting to go to sleep and I couldn't stop thinking about the message. I'm like, why though? She doesn't normally talk like that. She wouldn't normally send me a message like that. They were good friends. We used to like, we used to watch bad movies together. <laughs> it was like how we used to hang out. Like the worst, she had the worst taste in movies. Like she'd be like, oh, have you seen Orgasmo? And I'd be like, no, I've never seen Orgasmo. <laughs> she'd be like, how have you not seen Orgasmo? Everyone's seen Orgasmo. I'd be like, no one has seen Orgasmo. <laughs> but we would see like, we'd see things like Sharknado or something like, oh, we need to see that. We need to see that film about, about sharks being blown at LA in a storm. Things like that. But, I was sitting there like it was this lying in bed thinking about this really sort of earnest message I got from her and I'm like, I need to reply to that. And I was so tired. I just wanted to sleep. So I made myself get up and put my com- computer back on and message her back. And we had a little bit of, we had a little bit of a chat. It was just casual and it's like, she just like sleep during it. I'm like, hey, what's up to you tonight? Sort of thing. And she's like, oh yeah, you know, my plan, I'm doing that tonight. And I knew she was talking about her, um, her suicide. And I was so close to not even knowing. I won't describe what the plan was, of course, if it's not good to, to describe how people actually found things out. But the important information, I suppose, that it involved a type of poison and that was already in her system. So it was already in motion. And, you know, she was just messaging people while she was sitting there waiting for it to finish. It was job. So, you see, I don't tell this story very often. <laughs> I kept talking to her on, just talking to her on, on my phone. So I called, I called her up on my mobile. Then, fortunately at the time, I also had a landline, so I was able to get on the landline and call triple zero and get the ambulance without letting her know that I'm doing that because she doesn't want to be stopped. Then I had to sort of have, actually know her address because I don't remember things like that. I'd needed to message somebody else on Facebook. So I'm in three conversations at once. I'm talking to her on the phone, to the ambulance people on the landline and to my friend on over social media who actually, actually had her address and knew where she used to be. So the ambulance people are like, okay, we can, we'll try to get her an ambulance as fast as we can. Your job is to keep her closer. Your job is to keep her talking because if she blacked out, it's like things could get a lot, a lot worse. And so I'm maintaining those, those two conversations and I'm talking to her on the phone. And you can hear in the conversation, you can hear her moods flying all over the place, her thoughts coming disordered. I don't know at that point if they're actually going to get to her. I don't know. This might, I don't know if this is the last conversation. I'm, I'm just trying to keep her talking. I'm just trying to keep her to keep her awake so that she can, that's the best chance of, of staying alive for a bit. And it ended up like I was just almost pleading with her to not go. I was being like, I, I love you so much, you cannot die, you cannot go. And in desperation, I guess trying to think, of, like all I can think of, <laughs> all I can think of to say, I'm just like, you can't die because we haven't 
watched Sharknado yet. <laughs> we need to watch Sharknado. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I mean, things are pretty bleak when Sharknado is the best thing you can think of to stay alive for, because that's a terrible movie. I don't know if you say it. It's a terrible, it's a terrible movie. They did get there. They did get there. And so I heard them come in. And, you know, as I said, I think I'm, I think I'm the only person who remembers this. I'm not sure how much that she would remember. The thing that I remember was the most heartbreaking was when I found her. And I just heard this sigh of like, ah, fuck, I'm being rescued. It's like, ah, and just the dismay in that. Um, anyway, they did rescue her. She went to the hospital, was released straight away. We did it all over again. But she did, she got through, she survived. And she's, now back out and living happily and fine. We got through that. We got through that moment. Of course, I kind of can imagine at the same time as I'm doing this, I'm needing to do this back and forth fast thing with my family where I'm, you know, being at the hospital for my friends, being with my friends like that, having to take makeup off, go and see my family, and they're all busy because I'm not spending enough time with them and they've driven all this way. And it's just like, oh, God, but how can how can you do those conversations when you're dealing with all this other stuff? This is how the happy ending. But I think it was it was hard of course to go through it and it was hard again for not to be able to talk about it with anyone. Like there was no one who wasn't there, those of us who were there like doing it. I could talk with each other about it. There was no way I could tell my family who were there like supposed to support me. There's no way I could tell my friend still not personally out for it. And that's I think one of the hardest things. Uh, being in the closet is you go through all the hardest experiences that you go through during that time and that I could you go through and you cannot speak a word of it and you just have to hold that and yourself you just have to hold it and carry this thing the ironic thing about that was that if my family hadn't been being so shit <laughs> excuse me like they hadn't been so shit and arguing so much if they hadn't tired me out to the point that I didn't go to the party and I was just in my home feeling wrung out, I would not have seen that message. I wouldn't have been there for my friend and I, who knows what, what would happen. I, I mean, I, in a weird way, them coming down saved my friend's life. And I did thank them for that. It feels weird to thank people for having a big old argument, but it was like, I had to be like, yeah, look, if you hadn't been there, I wouldn't have been there for my friend. That was kind of the only conversation I've ever had with them about it. So, but yeah, I... I did have that conversation. I don't know. Sometimes with, sometimes especially with families, I think, like, you, unless you talk about things constantly, your story just disappears. Like, especially like when family spent all the time hanging out with each other, and then you're like the, the random queer sheep that are somewhere else, then, like, your life or the things that you say don't really feature in family mythology like that. So, I, I think they forget that kind of thing very easily. I thank Nikki for telling me that heartbreaking and really important story about the extra emotional load of being part of a minority group like ours. And it's never too easy to change mood so quickly, but I asked Nikki if she was open to telling me a 
Good day story. I would love to tell a happy story now. I'd love to tell a happy story now. Um, happy moments. They come out of intensity because, like, a lot of these times, it's the really, really hardest times, also, like, the happiest times as well. Like, that period of time that I'm talking about, like, in that in that wild house and um, dealing with all my own, my own mental health stuff and, and friends' mental health stuff and things. It's also a time when I came out, so some of my happiest days, my absolute happiest nights are from that that period as well. There's a time when you finally start start seeing yourself and finally start um, living the life that you want. Like I had the, like my coming out there was fabulous. I loved my coming out thing. I've been doing that thing where you sort of like plan out how it's going to go. You're so scared of it. I was so scared of coming out. Like so I had all these plans for like I'll do this at this time and this at this time and this and this. And like everything was like sort of lined up as when I thought, okay, that's when I'll come out to a family. That's when I'll come out socially. That's when I'll do this. But I've, I've been sitting on this, like, trying to get this plan happen for years, for years. I've been trying to do it and kept, kept getting too scared or too self-conscious. I've been like, oh, it'll be okay if just people on the internet know and no one else does. I can do that. I can live, like, two lives at once. But there was one time I had a birthday, and I've always hated my birthday, but mostly because it's just like, it was always like, oh, here's another year in the closet. Here's another year where people aren't going to sing the right name at you on the day or whatever and so it was always a bit of a time and I'd had another birthday which was just so depressing I was just like oh look oh you know look, fuck it fuck it a friend of mine talked about like the fuck it moments so you actually come out and it was it was literally just like this is a terrible birthday I want it to be good I'm gonna I'm just gonna go out and so I called up some friends who did makeup and hair and stuff like that they go like yep great let's do a makeover so I went out to see my friends in Ballarat Ballarat. So I went out to Ballarat and I just had this huge sort of makeover day where my friend who was like a makeup artist did all my makeup for me and gave me like full on like prom hair. Like my hair was wild. My hair has never looked like that before or since. <laughs> it was it was done up like really ornately as if I was on my way to my dead ball or my prom. It was like because really, I didn't have like at that, that point, like throughout my life I had sort of had clothes and throwing them out, had makeup throwing them out and, and that kind of thing. I needed to go shopping, I needed to start getting out a proper wardrobe. And so I'd been out with one of my friends who was another trans woman and her girlfriend. And we'd gone shopping together. I was still, you know, I was still in the closet mode. <laughs> but I was still, I was still dressed, dressed mask and stuff. And we'd gone out shopping to like Myers or somewhere in Ballarat. And we go around by like getting clothes. And my friend is the same size as me, so she'd try the clothes on and be like, yep, that fits. And be like, great, we'll take that one. Uh, so doing this little shopping trip, and then we go up to buy it. So we've got this big stack of stuff, and the woman at the counter goes throwing it in, and so I pull out my credit card. And she's like, to my friend, as if, like, we're together. She's just like, oh, it's great, and they buy, isn't it? <laughs> and we're like, yep, that's what's going on here. Yeah, sure. Anyway. So I had new clothes and then did fabulous hair and stuff. And then had a gathering like with a, bunch, a little bunch of friends. And we, we met up in uh, like a gay pub in Melbourne, which also like, you know, had regular trans nights. And that's where we went. And But then after that, it was then like we went out like to an all-night cafe and was just hanging out with a bunch of other women. I don't even know who half of those women were now, but like we just met them as we were wandering around. We formed this like little gang. But it was amazing to me, I think, like how much big I had been over that moment. And then as soon as I was out, it's just like, oh, everything's so easy. Everything's so much easier than it ever was. Like, it just felt so, so natural straight away. So that was hugely, hugely happy. And hugely happy to find that, because, like, when you imagine 
being out as trans before you come out, you're like, oh my god, everyone's like, it's going to be so much drama and everything. Like, if you ever watch a, a movie where there's a trans person and they come out, they're not, when they come out, it's like full of drama as they're dealing with like all the world's gender expectations all at once. And like, oh my god. And, but it wasn't like that at all. It was super easy. I was just super nice. The hard part was that having to, to go back in. I've been able to just not have to go back to a transphobic house, not have to deal with various other things like that. And things would have gone along swimmingly, but like it, of course, it doesn't go like that. You know, you have this glorious moment and you think, yay, life is good now. And then I think a lot of good moments that have happened, they often happen like me, I'm, I'm stereotyped. So I feel like I'm at my most me. I think just for various reasons, me off stage, often very like reserved, I don't often put forward my opinions about things. I kind of get used to being there. But yeah, when I'm on stage and everyone's just looking at me and listening to me, it's like, hey, that I get to tell you what it's like to, to be me. And so a lot of my really happy moments come out of those moments on stage. Like the first time I did a, I performed a stand-up show. I did the show and I came, and all my friends came. I wasn't in, all my friends came. He sort of like come down from the room and everyone in the in the pub is cheering you as you come down the stairs. That was just glorious, especially because I'd done my coming out shows. It was talked all about being asexual and stuff. More recently, like I did a, like when I started performing like actual queer nights, I remember the first time I did poetry at a queer event. So it's still, when I was still like not, not 100% out, I did readings of asexual poetry and stuff for a room full of people and they're all just like looking at you and, and loving it. And I did Gender Euphoria, which is a big cabaret show we did. And we, we saw our crowds that give us standing ovations every night that we did it. Part of what's so magical about that coming through between all these things is you, the stories that you're sharing on stage are like these really personal things, re- really personal things. The things that you felt ashamed about your whole life. I spent my whole life just being terrified of and I would not do anything that would risk me revealing that I was trying. I remember there would be, I never did, I never did any form of like sort of drugs or anything like that. And part of the reason was just like, oh no, if I let go of my control, then people will not, because I, I won't be able to be able to keep this nonsense up. I will tell people that I'm a girl and then I'll be like in, in trouble. So I would never do anything like that, which would make me lose control on that level. When I was depressed, uh, which I was a lot, and people said, oh, maybe you should go on antidepressants like Prozac or something. And I was like, no, I can't do that because if I start feeling happy about myself because of the pill, then I'll tell people. Then I'll tell people that I'm trans, I'm trans, I'm a, a girl, and then, then I'll be in trouble. And so it was built into my head that I had to punish myself for how I was, to, to, to not be happy, and to not do anything which might reveal things. And that went through on all sorts of things. I remember once I was applying for a job which had that. You know, it's very sort of stringent security requirements on it or whatever. And it's like, oh, if you have anything, do you have anything about you which could make you be compromised? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. I can't go for that job. I can't do that. I can't be in a serious position. I can't be in a serious responsibility. And it's like, it's all stuff that you do to you, yourself. And so I'm carrying that big bundle of all this, all this shame and all this stuff and go on stage and present what you thought was shameful to all these people. And they're like, <laughs> they all cheer, they all, and they're like, you get this big beam of love, and you're like, oh, oh, I'm okay. All this time I've been okay. And that's what makes those, those sort of experiences really, really validating. I mean, I feel like I still, like I keep needing these experiences. Like I haven't been in front of an audience for a while because of the pandemic and stuff. I'm just kind of like, oh my God, everything feels so, feels like too much. It's like I haven't had my audience validation. I need to be in front of a room full of people being like, yes, you're okay, you're okay. 
So I'm a needy comedian. I'm a needy comedian. I need people to be there laughing at my pain to make the pain go away. Thank you so much to Nikki for sharing her stories with us and I can't wait to see her back on stage one of these days. Thanks for listening to Best Day Worst Day. We'll be back again next time.